Well, I want to start off this morning by reading an excerpt from a speech. Uh, and just as you listen to these words, I want you to take note of what they do in you. Like, how do you feel about them? What do they, what do they cause to kind of stir up inside you as you hear these words? Listen. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten, forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency. Hi, how are you? To pray for clemency and forgiveness. What are those, what are those words stir in you? This idea that someone else is speaking on your behalf. Someone else is speaking of our national sins, of our vainly imagining that somehow we deserve these things which we've been given. Does it make you a little bit uncomfortable? It does in me, this idea of corporate confession, this idea that there is somehow corporate sin, and so therefore there must be corporate confession. Someone else speaking to God on behalf of me, of us as a nation, and calling us to confess and repent and pray to the God that we have forgotten. Well, this, this speech, this excerpt was taken from a speech that Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln gave in 1863. On this day, he proclaimed that there would be a national day of prayer and fasting and humiliation. How unprogressive does that sound? <laughs> a national day of humiliation. It's bizarre to me. It, it's so strange to me that at one point in our nation's history, it was normal for the president of the United States to call for national confession and prayer. And we don't actually do that in our churches. Right? I mean, why is it uncomfortable for us to talk about confession and do confession corporately as a church? I suspect we don't really talk about confession much because we don't really talk about sin much. It's kind of gauche to talk about sin, right? Like kind of judgy, you know? I mean, for those of us who grew up in and around fundamentalism, where everything was kind of a sin and who, like, if you made the wrong step, you, you could easily just end up like an eternity in hell if you just made one wrong move. And so for some of us, this idea of not talking about sin has actually been a wonderful and welcome reprieve, right? I think for the most part, we think that most of us in the world, like the majority of people I know are pretty good people. I mean, the majority of people I know, like, turn down their heat this week so that everybody could have a little bit of natural gas. <laughs> we eat local, and we try to be aware of our carbon footprint. We give to charities. We do good things. We volunteer and stuff. The majority of people I know are pretty good people, so why talk about sin? Let's keep it uplifting. We need inspiration in this world, not conviction, right? <laughs> Kenneth Woodward, who was the religion editor at Newsweek magazine for decades and retired fairly recently, wrote an article way back in 1984, like the dark ages. <laughs> he wrote an article called Pick and Choose Christianity, in which he looked at a three-year study that was done of Christians in the Midwest. 
Christians from all different kinds of denominations. And what he largely found was that people who came to church were making a practice of essentially choosing to accept the parts of Christianity they really liked and then rejected the parts they really didn't like. It was pick and choose Christianity. And in large part, the part that they rejected was any sort of teaching about sin. He wrote these words. What, money have, what many have left behind is a pervasive sense of sin. Although 98% said that they believe in personal sin, only 57% accepted the traditional notion that all people are sinful. And fully one-third allowed that they make mistakes but are not in themselves sinful. Said one typical... So 98% said they're sin, and a third of them said, yeah, but I'm not me. <laughs> anyway, uh, said one typical respondent, the day I die... I should only have to look up at my maker and say, take me, not forgive me. Interesting, right? This is 1984. I can't imagine we've improved on this attitude. Another study, which is more recent, was done in 2001 to 2005 by the University of North Carolina sociologist Christian Smith. He did an extensive study of how youth in America view, Christian youth in America view God and sin and all of these, these subjects. And what he found was largely uh, most young people, even those raised in evangelical so-called like Bible-banging, Bible-bell churches in the Midwest, had sort of reduced God to this deity in the sky who's not really that active in the world, and who doesn't really require anything of us at all. A God who was basically relegated to the inner sphere of one's private world. It's almost like we've taken the personal relationship with Jesus and made it a personalized relationship with Jesus. Fully customizable to whatever we want it to be. Most of these youths said they believe in God and they even felt very close to God. But they couldn't really articulate at all what that meant or any way in which they were required or responsible to contribute anything to that relationship. But they felt very close to God. And Smith called this not Christianity, but rather moralistic, therapeutic deism. Which sounds fine, right? And those are all good words. Like morals are good, and therapy is good, and deism is pretty good, <laughs> right? And you believe there's a God. He defined moralistic, therapeutic deism this way. There's three or five principles that are sort of the working theology of moralistic therapeutic deism. They believe that God created the world, good. That God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and also every other world religion. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. You see how this is kind of turning to be less about God and more about me. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. Central also to this idea was that each of us is responsible, responsible for finding our own way of God, our own definition of who God is. That who God is, is largely determined by my experience of God. Essentially, the message was, God is nice, we are nice, we should all be nice to each other. And God exists mostly to make me feel better about myself, so let's not talk about the yucky stuff. Completely absent is any sort of sense of sin of personal accountability or corporate accountability. Michael Horton from Westminster Theological Seminary wrote these words. How can I, a sinner, be right before a holy God? It's a question that's simply off the radar in a therapeutic mindset. Once the self is enthroned as the source, judge, and goal of all of life, the gospel not, need not be denied. It's beside the point. 
Once we've removed sin from any kind of thought about who God is, then, then there's absolutely no need for grace. The gospel isn't good news. It's non-news. It's a solution looking for a problem. And these ideas of therapeutic deism, I mean, they, while they borrow some language that is kind of Christian-y, it's actually antithetical to the core message of Christianity. We need to at least face that, at least acknowledge that this is not that. They are not the same core. At the very center of Christian belief is that sin, even if we're uncomfortable with it, even if we don't want to talk about it, is real. And not only real, but that it touches us, that it affects us. It exists, and every single one of us is touched in some small way by it. The Apostle Paul, writing in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, many of us heard this growing up, says this, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And I think growing up, I heard that, and I went, okay, so everybody's guilty because everyone has sinned. We've all done a sin, therefore all have sinned. And perhaps that's true, but I think there's so much more than that. Paul goes on in chapter 5 to kind of elaborate on that. Romans 5, verse 12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. Central to true Christian belief, core to the things that we practice, that we confess, is the idea that sin entered the world and none of us remained untouched. That all of us are affected and broken by it. That, that in sin it entered death and disease and broken relationships and selfishness and the garbage that we do to each other and we see people do to each other in this world. And it may be hard to get our heads around it, but we see the evidence of it all around us. I would argue that it is the presence of sin in the world that leads to terrorism and genocide and brutal dictators. It's the presence of sin in this world that leads, us, leads to abuses of power and corrupt companies and people committing incredible atrocities towards one another. It's the presence of sin in this world that allows and motivates a young man to, to abduct a young girl and kill her parents. It is evidenced all around us. Our pop culture and our movies and our stories embrace this. They give a name to what we're comfortable calling evil. You know, the dark side of the force, the resident evil, the, the, the bad guy in the movie, the wicked stepmother, the evil scientist, to these things that are out there that are fictional. We are very comfortable calling them evil. What those authors may not even realize is what they're doing is giving a name to something that all of us at our core recognizes. That there's an evil out there, a darkness out there, and it's easy to see in people with whom we don't agree. The molester, the politician, the corrupt leader. It's easy to see out there. It's much harder to identify and to see in here. In us, to admit to ourselves. I think scripture takes this thing that's so nebulous and just out there. And it takes it and it makes sense of this power, this force that is in this world that causes so much pain. It gives it a name and it calls it sin. And scripture would say that all of us, without exception, have the capacity to do bad things. And it's much harder to recognize that the same evil that causes these catastrophic, horrible, obviously really bad things is the very same power 
that causes us to be jealous of our friends' vacation pictures. It's the same power that causes us to objectify other people. It's the same power that allows us to to look with lust or to envy or anger that feeds the hate and the prejudice in us. It's that same power, but it's harder to see in ourselves. Scripture calls it sin, and Scripture has a lot to say about it. It turns out we're not the first generation that's actually dismissed sin and made it seem like it's not that big of a deal. So today we're going to look at the book, book of 1 John. 1 John was written by the Apostle John, who also wrote an earlier book that was cleverly called John. It was the Gospel of John. And now he's writing, John and some Christians had escaped Rome to, to escape the persecution of Rome, of Christians. And they'd gone to this area of western Turkey, the Roman province of Asia, to escape that. And there he planted these churches. They were made up largely of Gentiles, people who were foreign to the faith, who were neither Jew nor Christian, but who had come in and formed this new church. And later, John had left, and they were functioning, and he received word that this church was breaking apart, that a group of those believers had broken off from the church, and they had all these new ideas. And as Chris said last week, new is not always improved, right? They had all these new ideas. They didn't believe that sin was something to be worried about. They didn't believe that Jesus was necessarily God. He was kind of God-ish. They didn't believe that they had to, they believed that they could emphasize their own personal experience of God as being more important than what scripture taught, more important than what the apostles taught. Even though the apostles had known Jesus firsthand, their experience sort of trumped that. They were called Gnostics. And I think a lot of what they believed then kind of resonates with a lot of people in our culture and even in our churches sort of believe today that sin's not real. That how we experience God is how we define God. And to that, John writes these words. 1 John 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. So we're lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He's reiterating to this, this crowd, these are the words that Jesus spoke. I knew him personally, and I heard this, and I'm passing this on to you. These are not some kind of mystical experiences that I had of who God is, and I'm giving you my theories. He's saying, this is who Jesus said he was. The author is using this analogy of light and darkness as sort of two different realms, living in the light or being in the darkness. And John, who, as I said, also authored the book of John, the Gospel of John, has used that language before. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see this language of light and darkness. In the opening chapter of John, you may remember it, it opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 4, it says these, the Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. One of the commentaries I read said that John probably wrote the gospel of John while he was living among these people. This was a message he would have heard, that they would have heard, that he would have taught, that he would have reminded them over and over and over again in his time with them. And now he's writing back to them and saying, remember, remember that God is light, that Jesus is light, that he brought the light to defeat the darkness. Go to the light. That is where there is life. That is where there is truth. That is where we can practice the truth and live in reality. Living in reality. So I went to the doctor, hypothetically, because I don't. <laughs> but if I went to the doctor, 
And he said to me, you're 30 pounds overweight. You never exercise. Your diet is garbage. And you've got really high blood pressure. This is sounding way too real. (laughs) But if that's what he hypothetically said to me, I would have a choice. I can either live in that truth or I can deny that truth. But either way, it doesn't change that truth. I could tell myself, I don't have high blood pressure. I'm sure I don't. Or I'm sure lots of people have way worse blood pressure than me. (laughs) But I'm not living in reality if I do. I would be lying to myself. Well, here John is saying, if we say we don't have sin, we're lying to ourselves and to others. And we're not living in the light and the truth. We're not living in reality. But then John presents the alternative. John presents the truth. Saying in the next verse, verse 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our heart. So in the face of this epic thing, sin, the solution that John provides is confession. Why? Like, what's magical about confession? What does confession actually do? I want to spend the rest of our time today just looking at what confession is, what it does, why we do it. And it's not magical. And yet it's also not just sort of therapeutic, healthy self-talk. It's not just getting a load off our chest so we feel better and relieve the guilt that we feel. There's something that actually happens when we confess together. So let's look at that. There's a place to write this in your notes. If sin is a reality, this is the premise that John argues. If sin is a reality, then confession is a necessity. If sin is really the problem that Scripture says it is, and that our own experience of the world kind of confirms, even if we don't want to call it sin, our experience of the world kind of confirms that there is this thing that we need to find a solution. Michael Horton, who I quoted earlier, is also the author of Christless Community, an alternative gospel, the alternative gospel of the American church. And he writes these words, If our real problem is bad feelings, then the solution is good feelings. The cure can only be as radical as the disease. So building on that idea and realizing that I'm going to sound totally over the top and hypothetical, I'm sorry, hyperbolic in this, let's just build on that for a second. If sin is really an epic cosmic presence that entered the world and has infected all of humanity throughout all of time, which is what scripture claims it is, if that's true, then the solution must also be out of this world an epic. It must be cosmic. John says our way into that is confession. That's our way of entering into the light. That's our way of experiencing hope. And it sounds so simplistic. Let's look at it. Things that corporate confession are and does. I believe that corporate confession, there's a place to write this in your notes. Corporate confession puts us in right relationship with God. In confession, we, we confess that we face the reality that God is who he says he is. That we are who he says we are. And that this world works the way he says it does. We confess that God gets to define himself, not our experience of him. In confession, we say that we believe that sin is real. 
And not just real, but that sin has touched us, that sin has affected us and infected us. And sin, I mean, in confession, we say, I am part of the problem. And the problem is bigger than I can fix. Those words sound so unprogressive, so unenlightened. They're probably familiar to those who've gone through recovery. Recognizing that this problem is bigger than I can fix and I need an outside power. That is confession. And in confession, we demonstrate that our trust is in God and in God alone to fix that which is too big for us to fix. That God alone is that cosmic force that can actually do and break the power of sin in our lives, but also in this world. And since his power is so great, we can bring even the darkest, the deepest, the ugliest parts of ourselves to God, trusting that he has invited us to bring all that we are to him so that he might forgive us, but also restore us, renew us, and make us new in this world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the mid-century German theologian, wrote these words in his book, Life Together, talking about what it means to live in fellowship and in community with other believers. Listen to these words. It is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand that it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to a God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. God has come to save you a sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You don't have to go online to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. That last phrase is so weird. You can dare to be a sinner. What does that even mean? I think part of what Bonhoeffer is saying is that it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be willing to look in the mirror and say, I admit that I'm a part of the problem. I admit that I don't have this all together. I admit that I'm broken and that I need help, that I need others in my life. That takes courage. To dare to be a sinner. And it takes tremendous humility. In a culture where we are enthroned as the king of our lives. To be willing to subject ourselves. To submit ourselves to someone else. And to admit that perhaps we aren't all together. It takes courage. And it takes humility. But once we can confess that. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that. That we can say yes I'm not perfect. But I'm being perfected. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven and I'm called to forgive and be agents of reconciliation in this world. I was lost, but now I'm found. Or more accurately, I keep getting lost and God keeps finding me. (laughs) Right? You know where it's hardest to dare to be a sinner? Oftentimes among God's people. Oftentimes at church. It's not hard to dare to be a sinner at work. It's not hard to dare to be a sinner at school. Just do what everybody else is doing. But at church, to bring that part of ourselves. Does church feel like a place where you can be real with your brokenness? Or does it feel like a place where you need to bring up your, your, bring your cleaned up self, your best 
self, your most perfect self, your perfect family, your perfect marriage, or your perfect, I'm glad to be single self. Does church feel like a place where you're surrounded by people who know just how dependent they are on the grace of God to make it through another day? Or does it feel like one more place that you just need to put on a happy face and smile through it? If that's the case, then church can be a pretty lonely place. Again, I want to read these words of Bonhoeffer and realize these were written in the 1940s. So this language is not gender inclusive. Try not to hear that. Hear instead his heart. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because, though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the community. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we all are sinners. But in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will the power of sin be over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and the seclusion of the heart. Part of what he's saying is in a community that is unwilling to confess, it is possible to come together and be in proximity and still very much not be in community. To come to a place where you feel like you're the only person who doesn't have it all together. And to feel like it's not a place that is safe to bring all of you. But he says, echoing the words of John, that if we are willing to come and be confessional as a people, we can break through that. He's echoing the words of John. Remember John said in 1 John 1, 5 through 7, he said, but if we're willing to live in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When we are willing to be a confessional community, confession puts us in right relationship with one another. There's a place to write that in your notes. Just like confession properly orders or reorders our relationship to God, it also reorders our relationship to others, to one another. We can dare to be a sinner, at least in part because we know we're surrounded by sinners. If we're willing to be that kind of community for one another. We confess together in this place, but also in our relationships with other people here at ECC. We create an environment where we can dare to be sinners, where we proclaim that we're all in it together, that, there are, that we are all broken people, where there's no perfect people allowed. That phrase, no perfect people allowed, kind of gained traction over the last several years within churches. And it's clever, and it's cheeky, and it's kind of funny. But there's actually some profundity, there's some profoundness to it. 
It's saying there's no perfect people allowed because if the person you're bringing is perfect, we know we're not, you're not bringing the real you. And that's not good for you, and it's not good for us. It becomes a barrier to us being a people who are willing to face our stuff, who are willing to call it what it is. So no perfect people allowed. We must dare to be sinners for our own sake, but also so that others can dare to be sinners too. And so when we, as a community, speak these words of confession together as a community, we are demonstrating that we are all in this together. We are all willing to dare to be sinners. We are practicing the truth. There's a place to write this in your notes. I think confession together allows us to practice the truth, as John said. Corporate confession, for those who who grew up in evangelical circles, probably sounds a little foreign. I asked my wife, Kara, uh, this week, who grew up Baptist. I said, what was your, like, do you remember your first experience with corporate confession, of like speaking a corporate confession together as a congregation? She goes, yeah, it was the first time we came to Emmanuel, and we read that thing before <laughs> communion. <laughs> For those of us who grew up in, you know, Baptist and E-Free and these very evangelical traditions, this idea of speaking one voice together, of declaring to God with one voice, is very foreign and, frankly, a little uncomfortable. Does anyone relate to that? (laughs) But it's practicing truth. It's saying to God who we acknowledge we are. But even though this practice of corporate confession was absolutely central to the early church and absolutely central to the people of God throughout all of the history of the people of God, we in the modern Western church have largely abandoned it preferring instead our personal relationship with Jesus, or maybe more accurately, our personalized relationship with Jesus. It's very American. It's a very highly individual, individualistic approach to faith that would have seemed very foreign to the church of Scripture. So that's why at ECC, we want to build these rhythms where we come together on Sunday mornings, once a month, where we come together for Ash Wednesday services, where we come together even in small churches and in small groups and over lunch and over one-on-one mentoring relationships to practice these truths, to live into these realities that break through our cultural habits. It's why we do this reading every month together before we receive communion. We believe that speaking with one voice before God does a number of things. It puts us in right relationship as a community, right relationship with God, but it also speaks to each other, putting ourselves in right relationship with one another. We are all in this together. And when we do that, we as a community are practicing the truth. We are practicing being a confessional people. Every month before communion, we read these words that Kara did for the first time when we came, and I did for the first time when we came here. I want to look at those words today. I want to read those words over you today, these words that are so easy to mumble through as a people, and look at them. These are central to who we believe God is calling us as people of God and as a church locally to be. Listen to these words, and as you do, Be aware of what they're stirring in you. Places where they're uncomfortable for you. Places where maybe you disagree. Hear these words. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. That is saying in one voice, God, We know that we can hide nothing from you, that we are not worthy to even approach you. 
You know the thoughts of our hearts and the, uh, the thoughts of our minds and the desires of our hearts, which means you know the anger, you know the lust, the jealousy, the bitterness, the brokenness, the loneliness, all of it that is represented in this room. And we together lift that to you. We bring them to you, not just to take a load off, but to ask you, God, to cleanse us, to renew us. That you could forgive us of our sin, but also wash us of the effects of the sin of this world on our lives. The effect that sin has on us as a people. We need you. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, by what we have left undone. We confess we are sinners. That is a big statement in our culture. Can you confess that? Can you say those words and really own that? Can you face that reality? That we've sinned against a perfect and holy God who loves us. Both by what we've done and what we've left undone. Those are words that are unfamiliar to me growing up in evangelical tradition. And they're beautiful and they're poetic. Both by what we've done and what we've undone. But they are practiced. They are meant to be intentionally and perhaps even dangerously a little vague. Because while we know what we've done and what God knows what we've done, (laughs) if we leave it there and we aren't willing to then share that, to go to a deeper level of confession where we're willing to say, God, I'm going to share with someone else, someone in my small church, someone in a one-on-one relationship, someone who who has been willing to dare to be a sinner with me. And that sin remains just a generalized done and undone. But we come into this place to practice that, to say, God, I give you the things that I've done and the things that I've left undone. God, you know what they are. I know what they are. Forgive me. Do you have people in your life, people that you can bring all of you to, where you can dare to be a sinner? If not, find them. Not just for your sake but for their sake so that we can bear each other's burdens, carry the weight of each other's sin as Christ gave the example to us to do. It is then that light can break through when we remind each other of the grace and the power of Jesus. That is when light breaks the power of darkness and breaks the power of sin in our lives when it is brought into light and accountability. Let's continue. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We've not loved our neighbor as ourself. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. God, we confess that we're a people who are constantly divided. We have not loved you as we should. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have instead constantly put ourselves on the throne. And we acknowledge that. God, we need you to forgive us for that and to give us new life so that we can delight not in simply our will, but in your will. We can walk not in our ways, but in your ways through this world, bringing your light to this world. Help us, lead us. We need you. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive. 
but say the word and we will be made clean. Those words, we are not worthy. I mean, it reminds me of, was it, uh, we are not worthy. Wayne's World, thank you. Wow, how do I not know that reference? It's like I'm not a child of the 90s. That's what these words kind of hearken in me. That's what it kind of stirs up in me. It's like, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm a worm. Let me give you another perspective. What if this is saying, God, you alone in the universe are worthy. We aren't. And there's nothing we can do about that. But God, you've promised that you can make us worthy. That you can invite us in and give us the place in front of you, in your throne, as your children adopted sons and daughters. At the word, we will be made clean and brought into that kind of fellowship with you and with one another. It's acknowledging God, only you can make us clean and restore all things. These are at the core of what we believe as a church, what we profess and confess as a church. And you confess that. Where where are you at with all of this? I mean, what did that stir in you? Frustration, anger, denial, this is stupid. <laughs> he fell for it. It's okay. I think, and there's a place to write this in your notes. I think that the first step to transformation for anyone is confession. So maybe you're here today and you don't really buy into any of this. The sin thing, the God thing, that cosmic force thing. That's Okay. Maybe that's your confession today. Maybe your confession is, I don't believe I need to have confession. I would invite you to even speak those words, to even bring that confession into the light of God and see how God honors that. That little bit to say, God, I'm not sure I buy any of this. I'm not even sure if you're hearing me, but I bring this to you. I confess this to you. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with anxiety and depression and this whole conversation around sin and darkness and murdering stuff just feels like it's another weight that's being piled on you. That's not our desire at all. Our hope, in fact, is, is that you would see we could, it's explainable. That is the evidence and the, and, the, and the effects of sin in this broken world, but there's hope and there's light and there's a God who wants to renew and restore and empower See, maybe your confession today is, God, I'm broken and I need you. I don't like this. I don't want this. And I can't fix it. God, I need you to fix this in me. Maybe you're here today and you're harboring hurt and pain from past relationships. And the anger that you have is completely justified. Horrible things were done to you. And it's just eating you up. Maybe what you need to confess today is, God, I can't forgive. I can't. They don't deserve it. They're not worth it. They hurt me. Confess that to God. Recognize that that is still the power of sin. And I'm not saying that a judgy way. That lack of forgiveness is only hurting you. Say to God, I can't. I, I can't do it. I need your help. Renew me. Restore me. Make me delight in your ways. In your will. Lead me. I, I don't know what your confession is today. Perhaps you do. But I would argue certainly God does. The psalmist, David, in a beautiful piece of liturgy that he gave us to the church from Psalm 139, taught us to pray, taught us to seek God in this, using these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. 
and lead me along the path of everlasting light. I want to invite the, the band to come up now. We are going to enter into this time of communion and we're going to do that confession, that litany that we do each month together now in this time. But before we do, I want us just to take a few moments for us in this space to corporately and silently reflect, to ask the Holy Spirit to do exactly what David is inviting us to do. Say, Holy Spirit, search me. God, search me and know me. Reveal to me anything in my life that offends you. Reveal to me anything in my life that is a barrier to my relationship with you. Reveal to me anything in my life that is a barrier to my relationship with the people in this room or the people in my life. Show me, reveal me so that I might confess those things to you, so that those things might be restored. And as the band plays, I'm going to read over you another of David's songs. The psalmist David gave us a litany, a liturgy, a rehearsal that was based on his own experience of confession before God, written from one of the darkest, most brutal times in his life, where he came to a place where he faced the reality and realized that his actions, his sin, his selfishness, his pride, his arrogance, his lust, had caused him has caused untold hurt to the people in his life and also to the heart of God. And so these words were first his own personal, private confession to God. But then he dared to be a sinner. And he shared these words with the nation so that they might make these words their own as a way of practicing truth. He shared them with the nation and with us, a litany, a liturgy, a practicing of the truth, so that we might recite them too as our corporate confession. A song, a psalm, Psalm 51. I invite you, as David invited you, to hear these words and to make them your own. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Think on those words. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right and in your you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me.
then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. We're going to enter into this time now of communion. And we've got some time. The big game doesn't start for hours. I would encourage you to take this time to continue to reflect, to continue to ask God to reveal, to speak in you. And then when you're ready to come forward and receive the bread and the wine. Now let's read together these words of confession, together with one voice before God.